Hello and welcome to The Lens with me, Sarah Travers. The Lens is a business in the community podcast in partnership with One Young World. I'm thrilled that our guests today come from opposite ends of the planet. Our first guest is Troy Douglas, founder of drinks company Nexpa. The company is taking the world by storm and has already removed more than 5 billion grams of sugar from global diets. And it's just getting started. Our second guest is Taylor Quinn of Tailored Foods, whose ambition is to be a key catalyst in ending hunger by 2030 by building delicious, nutritious, low-cost food systems around the world. In this episode, we'll be exploring the world of responsible food and drink, how the ingredients we use or don't use impact the health and well-being of nations, how those living in areas of severe deprivation are benefiting from the work of our guests today, and we'll find out what's next in innovation in these sectors. To find out, let's get into the conversation. Troy, Taylor, welcome to The Lens. So folks, I'm so delighted that we could get you both on The Lens at the same time. That's been quite a a challenge as Troy, you're joining us from Australia and Taylor, you're linking in from Canada. So let's start with finding out a little bit more about both of you. So Troy, could I start with you first of all, and can you share with us your story? So my name's Troy Douglas. I'm the co-founder of Nexbar. Effectively, we're a 12-year journey thus far. We were founded in 2010 with my brother-in-law, Drew Bilby. It's fair to say that both of us were very passionate about brand, about purpose, and wanting to make an impact with what we saw as the devil of the industry, which is sugar. And I think what we then saw over our journey in 12 years is a switch for multinationals moving to artificial ingredients, which is equally, if not worse, for the health and wellness of everybody that are consuming products. So we set on a mission very early as an expert to rid the world of sugar and artificials, and we're underpinned by this good sweet IP that allows us to create all natural, sugar-free and great tasting products. Absolutely fascinating and, and, and brilliant that you've taken that idea and built such a successful business. So same question to you then, Taylor, if you wouldn't mind sharing your story. My story starts back in 2015. I moved uh, to Liberia in West Africa about two thirds of the way through the Ebola outbreak. Um, And I initially moved there to do a charity project. But after six months of learning and listening to the dynamics in Liberia, I came to appreciate that there was a huge gap in the market where families across Liberia wanted to feed their families healthy, nutritious food, but healthy, nutritious food was not available in local markets. Uh, Food prices were super high, so kids were dying of malnutrition. My background in social enterprise and uh, academically, I'm a food anthropologist, so I began the, the long, slow complex journey of asking the question and trying to answer, is it possible to design food products in a way that they can be super tasty and and really fulfilling to what consumers want, um, but also radically affordable to the poorest of the poor? And so we're six years into that journey at Tailored Food, and we've done millions of meals at this point in not only Liberia, but other markets where we, as Tailored Food, we partner with local enterprises typically run by women, 
to design and take to market nutritious, delicious, low-cost food products. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating, Taylor. I just want to start with, you know, your first statement that you said there, that you moved to Liberia during the Ebola crisis. Why? Were you not terrified? Mm. Most people would be staying away. I was definitely a little terrified. Um, Similar to Troy, I, I started this work, you know, in my early 20s. And while I was a university student, I had read about, you know, what was going on in in West Africa with Ebola, but I I thought what was happening was was really sad and really intense. And I had always thought while I was in university and following what was going on in West Africa, if I had an opportunity to spend time in that part of the world with my background in food anthropology and business, uh, if I could do something to contribute to that part of the world, uh, I wanted to try to do so. Well, Highly commendable, I suppose, for both of you. And thank you for the introductions. And, you know, both terribly passionate about what you do and that uh, responsible food production. Just tell us what makes your business or organization different and why are you so passionate about what you do? Troy? When I reflect back, one of the things is a a young 20-year-old and being fortunate to explore and and visit places in Australia, different Indigenous communities, it was pretty shocking to see uh, the products that are widely available and what's cheap typically is what people consume and taste is a big part of that. So it kind of really set us on a course of it's not right that uh, we're leading and making products available and cheaply that are very negative from a health perspective. So it was about how do we make a brand and a product that tastes great and can be widely available. So we really set off on a mission uh, to create naturally sugar-free. I think in terms of how we've built the business from um, just leaning into the industry is the fact that we set out to be first with being naturally sugar-free with our good sweet IP and leaning on amazing people in the industry. I guess that allowed us to uh, collaborate with retailers about reinventing categories like soft drinks that are traditionally packed with sugar. So once we had that IP, we then started to really innovate collaboratively with partners um, in the same way that we've done in the UK with Sainsbury's and really look at um, what are the categories causing the biggest health on uh, impact from a consumption perspective. And obviously we began in the soft drinks and now it's about scaling beyond that into other categories. And how difficult was it when you got started? I mean, did you have an audience and were stakeholders receptive to, you know, your purpose, your vision, or was it a slow burner? Yeah, I'd say the first six years as we were developing Good Sweet was a slow burner and I was very comfortable at the being naive and young to reach out to incredible people to learn from their experience in the industry. And I think that allowed us to get traction. We imported a canning line from, we purchased on Alibaba into Australia, set up a factory. We had a whole warehouse fill, filled with stock and not one customer. Um, we thought that's just what you did. <laughs> but clearly we then learned that to scale, you need to really find the right partners to collaborate with to get um, products available and on mass. I think the fortunate thing for us is the the concept of better for you, which is clearly such a big thing today, actually wasn't necessarily the case 12 years ago. Retailers would literally say verbatim, we believe in better for you, but we don't believe consumers are willing to kind of pay for that yet. And it's pretty funny to reflect how fast that's accelerated. It's an industry dominated by giants. (laughs) So it's the best thing that we can do as a challenger brand is 
become as big as we can with naturally sugar-free because what we see the future of every single category in the in, in the supermarket aisle should be is what's traditionally been packed with sugar products and then it's emerged with diet sugar-free all this stuff that's good marketing terms for artificial should disappear um so aspartame as an example so that stuff needs to be replaced as fast so as do we can. you think that's worse than the sugar Absolutely. Obviously, I'd always endorse Dexpo, but if you're going to drink a sugar or a diet product, you could probably you should probably have a sugar product versus an artificially sweetened product. And as you said there, Troy, you know, you're taking on these mega giant brands that, you know, we all know, and you are that challenger brand. How do you feel then when you actually see someone and they've chosen your brand over those big giants? How does that make you feel? It makes you feel pretty awesome. We began a lot in schools as well in the early days. And ultimately, the brand over 12 years has built a lot of advocates and parents that have kids with diabetes, all that type of stuff naturally lends itself to people who discover our product to help support it. I think what's fair to say in FMCG, in the Australian market, it is really about delivering on quality of a product, getting availability on a shelf, because taste is uh, matters a lot from a repeat purchase perspective. Um, so I think that's just supported us in getting scale. But it, it feels good. But it's exciting to know that we're now um, launching, we'll be available in about nine European markets. Um, we're in the UK. Yeah, how are, you, how are you doing in the UK? Yeah, really well. So we're available now in most of the majors. We're in Sainsbury's, Tesco, um, Morrison's. We've just got a couple more to tick off. But in our kombucha space, that's grown really strongly. Um, and we're tackling a lot of the other categories like soft drinks. Uh, Taylor, just bringing you in then on that sort of same point, the fact that we're looking at the challenges and the opportunities in the food and drink sector, and maybe in some of the countries that you're finding yourself working in, you know, there, there, there are different considerations than perhaps where Troy is working, but what makes your business or organisation different? I think we've heard and you've touched on it already, but why, why, why are you so passionate about what you do? Our business is kind of built on three kind of core truths that drive what we do. Our first like kind of core insight was that moms everywhere want their kids to be healthy, but they they are you know balancing uh, a health goal with other goals around cost, around food that's convenient to prepare. Secondly, big food companies make huge profits selling unhealthy food to the poorest consumers around the world. Our experience working in some of the most complex markets is that people are often spending more money than consumers in the UK or Australia or the US uh, when you look at their percentage of, of income. Uh, so, you know, in the UK or the US, you know, a family will spend about 10 to 15 percent of their, their income on food. Um, whereas in the markets we're working in, families are spending upwards of 60, 65 percent of their income on food. And then so the third core principle that makes us different is we believe that if you can find innovations in your value chain and how you're operating, you can actually make healthy food that's profitable to sell uh, and allows you to scale a business in markets like Liberia or Mozambique or Ethiopia or wherever it might be. So that's kind of what makes us unique from a, a value perspective. And then we as tailored food position ourselves in the market, not under our own brand. We're a bit of kind of the, the ghost partner 
um, behind a lot of a lot of amazing, amazing, amazing entrepreneurs who operate uh, in in the markets that we work in. So in Liberia, we uh, partnered now for five years with a business called Kawada Farm. Um, Kawada Farm, uh, before we got connected to them, they were a small little operation making uh, sugarcane-based alcohol and selling raw cassava. Uh, cassava is like a starchy potato, basically. So they were basically a small farming operation when we got involved with them. Together, we renovated half-built hotel, turned it into a food production facility with $800 worth of equipment that we built at local motorcycle mechanic repair shops. And we use that $800 worth of kind of ragtag off-the-grid equipment to begin producing a fermented porridge product uh, and launched that fermented porridge in the Liberian market. Even though we were selling nutritious fermented porridge, we decided to go to market aggressively. So we painted walls, we painted community centers. We gave out T-shirts. We worked with hip-hop stars and comedians to host concerts in, in slum communities. We hosted football matches. All the same things that a big brand would do, but trying to activate consumers with grassroots marketing, not for you know kind of the typical products that that you would see, but for super nutritious, uh, low-cost porridge. So we have a network of technical advisors that we bring in from uh, the U.S. food industry and kind of from from my global network of food industry contacts, depending on the project need. Just sorry, if I can jump in. Just hearing Taylor talk about multinationals pumping out of uh, unhealthy food <laughs> out to markets, and particularly in low economic environments, I think resonates strongly because I think the food technology exists that that should not be the case anymore. But the reality is, is something like naturally sugar-free and the good sweet that we use. When we began this journey, it was four times the cost of sugar as an example. So I think it's a, an important shift that needs to change. And, it's, and what you're doing, Tyler, sounds amazing. Yeah, and um, to add on to what Troy said, I think the really fascinating shift that I've seen in the world of food uh, working in this space is that consumers genuinely are looking for healthier products. Historically, Unhealthy products have been maybe marketed as healthy or have had marketing claims that connote some sense of health. Even those consumers in the bottom income quintiles are looking for products that will, will nourish them and their families. And so from a business perspective, I think it's the responsibility of the food industry to kind of meet that consumer desire while still performing, you know, when it comes to taste and price and availability and shelf life and, and all of those core factors. I'm sure everyone says they are a responsible food producer, but do, who's doing good things apart from you at the minute to make sure that these messages are reaching the places that they need to? Well, I think all artificial sweeteners should be uh, out of use. <laughs> so they should be removed from products and replaced with uh, naturally sugar-free alternatives that aren't causing negative health implications. Uh, so I think there needs to be a greater focus is rather than have that kind of bad exemption in the UK as an example, they should be doing that for products that are actually being naturally sugar-free. So rather than um, simply have a tax on sugar, you should actually be encouraging uh, the acceleration of food and beverages that are ticking the boxes from a health perspective. So which countries are doing it well? I think every country can can do it better. I think yeah, to Taylor's point, I think there is a rising 
consumer awareness and COVID really accelerated it for better for you products. I think the more recently though, the challenging with economic environment means that typically people will forgive better for you products, which can be largely more expensive and they're going to be spending their money on um, unfortunately, the unhealthy products. So I think this environment right now is quite challenging from a health perspective. So if we say compare it to the tobacco industry where any you know tobacco now in the UK is sold and when the packaging is very much showing the harm that, that smoking can, can do, do you think that food labelling needs to be better on this? Taylor? The tobacco industry comparison is a good one, and it's a small step, but there's a number of Latin American countries that are actually doing really interesting things when it comes to um, consumer labeling. And so in countries like Chile and more recently in countries like Mexico, there's uh, warning labels that have been put on uh, food products that are high in sugar or salt or fat. Um, and so that's a new kind of growing trend where similar to a, a pack of cigarettes, uh, there will actually be a pretty unappealing warning logo. And um, Taylor, if I could just stick with you for the minute, because I'm fascinated by uh, what I found on the website that you conduct your anthropological research by ultra running through the countries that you work in. Right. Talk me through ultra running. You know, when when in a vehicle, getting in a car, driving to a place, getting out, I, I find that's often not the most effective way to really try to understand a, a food landscape and figure out what, what are the insights that are really driving a community's food system. And so even when I'm involved in a project with a partner like the United Nations, after I'm, I'm finished with my hosts, I will always put on my running shoes and, and go out on my own um, and, and get lost running through whatever city or, or community that I'm in and, you know, find myself in people's homes or, or deep in a market talking to a market vendor about their profit margin or running, you know, the entire west coast of Rwanda to track how pricing is different in urban versus rural settings. For me, I find that running is, is the best form in which, with a lot of stopping involved, is the best form in which to really try to get a pulse of what community eats. But uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoy coming from this work as a as an anthropologist, you know, as deeply as I can integrate myself into the communities that I'm operating in. And I find getting out of a vehicle and being able to wander through market stalls and uh, things like that are the best is the best approach for me. I, know, I just I just love um, I'm imagining Taylor, you doing that, and I'm like practically. What do you are you laptopless, like, or are you just always carrying erotic stuff? I'd love to. Yeah. So yeah, paint the picture for us, Taylor. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> So generally, you know, I'm always carrying my running shoes whenever I, I go to a new place. And I find for better or worse, conducting research in our modern world, even in some of the most kind of rural communities that, that I'm working in. So I find actually a phone versus a laptop or, or any form of clipboard is kind of the least invasive uh, way to record insights and record notes. And then if I get back to wherever I'm staying later that day or a few days later, I'll kind of turn those into more robust insights. So are you a bit of a cult figure in these places? Do people, it's a bit, I'm imagining a bit of a Forrest Gump, you know, that yeah. you attract all these people and think, who's there's the running man? 
people often assume something's wrong, but it's not super common that maybe a, a person who looks pretty foreign to their community is is running uh, through their community. So uh, I do get some strange looks, but mostly people who who are just genuinely like excited to see that I'm jogging in their community and and feel safe to spend time doing exercise in their community. And and just for myself, what thematic have you seen the most that you would like to um, see different? Whenever I go into a new project, I'm often told at a, at a high level, hey, here's kind of like the big market categories, but really looking at what people are eating often like on the side of the road, where the opportunities are between modern consumerism and traditional food products that people love. Finding those opportunities and those intersections is, is kind of the, always the focus of my wanderings in, in markets. Looking at, at food products that maybe have been made in traditional ways, so there's capacity and, and knowledge to produce at a local level, and how do you kind of redesign those traditional product forms uh, in order to produce at scale, but also produce uh, more nutritiously. So, Troy, how do you do your research then? Having not come from the industry in the beginning, I think one of the best ways to learn and grow is through conversation and tapping into the experiences of people that have lived and have a lot more experience than I necessarily had in certain areas of business. And how do you scale impact and accelerate making an impact, but do it in a way that um, you need to be a business that can be profitable? And I think meeting other founders is always energizing everyone's got incredible stories and learnings i think one thing that we've been supported by as a business is we've become custodians of shareholders with people that have done amazing things in business and they genuinely believe in our mission of reading the world of sugar and artificials uh, so you feel this responsibility to continually make an impact and to scale and their stories help um, ultimately, as a founder, you need to back your decisions and own your decisions. But I think it's always incredibly important to ha- be open to receiving information that could challenge your thinking. So I think that ultimately will mean that you've got a better business. And I think everybody that is in our team, I think everyone's genuinely passionate about what we do, which which is incredibly helpful and supportive of where we're going. And I, and I think more recently, in the last two years, as a as a business, it used to be about just driving growth, um, whereas today it needs to be obviously very sustainable to make an impact. <laughs> so the our next phase of what we recognize is through personally, I've spent two years chatting to big private equity, big multinationals. Um, there's no better platform to build than yourself uh, in terms of the next we're evolving to the Good Suite Group and as founders actually bringing founders into that platform, leveraging that platform to then support how do you accelerate distribution and synergies through manufacturing? So that's kind of the focus for us in this next phase. And Troy, you're also part of the Young Presidents Association, I believe, a global group of young CEOs. Love to find out a bit more about that and how important you find this in terms of leadership, learning to be a good, responsible leader, that networking and the sharing of the knowledge. It's been incredibly important. So YPO, uh, young President's organization. It'd be remiss of me not to share, but one of our, as I kind of referenced before, a secret to us as a business scaling has always been to surround ourselves with great expertise. And one of, so when we were launching to the UK, having not been there before, we kind of built these champions, people in different industries to be advisors. And I think what's powerful about having 
a group of people it can be anything. It can be you can set up your own group with friends or people that you meet. Is ultimately having creating a safe environment to share experiences. I think the reality is is you don't need to be a founder to feel isolated. So I think just leaning into conversations is a healthier and more enjoyable way to live. And Taylor had been talking there about finding and working with ambitious entrepreneurs to develop his products. Is that the same for you, Troy? Do you, how do you find the people with the big ideas? Maybe those people who you align your thinking to or those people, as you said, who challenge you. And But ultimately, they're making important contributions to the thinking around the business. Yeah, absolutely. The The ethos for the, the Good Suit Group is effectively surrounding and joining forces with brands that taste good and do good. And I think that the power of evolving to a group that takes away a brand like Nexpo, which is all consumer facing, is in a way, how do you remove the ego of founders uh, to create a platform where everyone can genuinely just be there to focus on scaling the brands that we all believe in uh, that, that should be more widely available to have an impact. Taylor, would you like to come in there on the importance of having or belonging to a network or surrounding yourself with the right people? My experience has been that it's few and far between to find fellow people working at the intersection of wanting to build really exciting businesses and wanting to genuinely create social impact. When you find fellow dreamers and, and doers and operators who really kind of who really exist at the intersection between uh, social impact and and the food industry. I get really excited and and have a lot of time and capacity to connect with others and and to learn. At, you know, I'm still pretty young, so try to learn as much as I can from from those at that intersection. But also now I'm trying to do as much as I can to dedicate a good chunk of my time to mentoring uh, the next generation and and sharing the learnings I've had uh, growing tailored food over the last six years. Oh, I'm sure you would really help. Uh, both of you would really help those coming behind. So what are the next innovations coming down the line for both your organizations? What do you want to do next, Troy? Yeah, well, I'm I'm literally living and breathing my life with our structural evolution to the, the Good Suite Group. That really, the drivers underpinning that is kind of focused on that brand platform, distribution aspects, and then manufacturing from a, a long-term scale. And I think in this environment more than ever, it's taking control and being able to have control as a founder of how you drive growth uh, and attract the right people to be on the on the bus and on the journey to, to widely make products available. So uh, obviously at the next brand level, it is really we're in that phase of scaling um, beyond the markets are already in. And beyond that, I think there is a nice environment of uh, putting arms around smaller, passionate brands in a way that can help their businesses grow in what can be challenging environments is is kind of, I think, going to be the most rewarding thing that we can work on in the years ahead. And tell me a little bit about kombucha. Is that how you say it? I know one of your products is becoming more and more popular. What is it and why is it so good for people? Kombucha and I guess functional products in general, we spent years to actually add in uh, bacillus coagulans, which is like a fortified probiotic that can survive um, different temperatures and it really gets activated when it hits the warmth of your gut. So we, in Australia, we're one of the only brands that can actually say um, promotes uh, good gut health, having had that kind of proper science testing. But kombucha is just a delicious fermented tea, effectively. And what is unique to our brand is because of our good sweet, uh, we focus on making it taste appealing like a traditional soft drink. 
Yeah, the taste is very important, isn't it? Taylor, same question to you. What are the next innovations coming down the line for Tailored Foods and you? We've spent uh, the last couple of years really focused on taking our initial success and and trying to see if the business model was also going to be true in other markets. You know, was there opportunities to to profitably sell super nutritious food to the lowest income consumers? And so now we've proven that out in, in five markets, that model. So what's next for us is really taking our learnings um, and trying to better share those uh, with the food industry, with the non profit industry and kind of with the world at large. We're putting together a documentary film um, as well as sh- sharing more lessons learned with food companies looking to operate in the markets we're operating in. Um, we're big believers that no no food company is bad or, or evil uh, and the people who run these run big food companies are inherently good people who are just existing in a bad system. Good people in bad systems at the end of the day want to do good things if you can prove that a better system is possible. Love it, Taylor. I wonder, do either of you have a question for each other? Just as you're talking, what do you say is the issue with the systems um, from a big manufacturer perspective? I think the, the fundamental issue is that it is most often the case that the unhealthy ingredient is slightly cheaper than the, the than the healthy ingredient. So from a food manufacturer perspective, if you're only looking at economics, you're probably going to p- choose that unhealthier ingredient. And I think it's a kind of a two-prong approach that can solve it. It's like partially it's policy and partially trying to build the business case And that's my goal is to try to build the evidence base that even low income consumers are intentionally choosing uh, healthier products um, and taking that evidence to category leaders uh, in order to show them that, hey, like this is not just a fad. It is where the market's going. And are you, Taylor, are you trying to um, help fund some of these entrepreneurs in these Countries like, do you help give access to funding? Because I think ethical finance and funding could go a long way in trying to change the structure of how businesses are set up to operate. I most definitely agree with you. The funding and and the funding to really scale a business to a point where you can compete um, against you know the big players in whatever market you're operating in. Uh, that can be a real challenge. And so, so we'll give small grants, but then we'll help our partners either raise non-diluted grant capital or sometimes uh, investment capital, depending on the partner and depending on the market. Taylor, do you have a question for Troy? Yeah, very quickly, Troy. Taking this methodology of, of consumers want uh, you know healthier products and, and uh, uh, in a category like, like soft drinks that you know traditionally has been extremely unhealthy, and how has the experience been communicating to consumers that this category that historically has been so unhealthy actually can can be different? Yeah, certain markets require greater education and investment in marketing to help educate. In a country like Australia, it really stems down to physical availability. And I think the benefit of being able to have a conversation with decision makers to get distribution and ranging of a product, it's very easy to, to help a buyer understand that naturally sugar-free should be the solve for giving presence within a category in a fridge or in the supermarket shelf. There's a lot of data out there in terms of 20% of people know they want something in that space, but not sure what. So that kind of, you, you're always going to attract that kind of initial 
And then if the product is delivered in a way and you can build a bit of narrative onto the product, then that's kind of where you can build that advocacy in an organic way without needing to spend large. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's probably the best way to educate because we're not um, we're not a business that is um, had the ability in the past to invest serious cash into uh, marketing and education. It has it has really been through PR and advocacy uh, and tapping into networks of communities. Gents, it's been an absolute joy talking to you today, a real eye-opener. Thank you so much to Troy Douglas, founder of drinks company Nexpa, and to Taylor Quinn of Tailored Foods. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Sarah Travers. If your business is keen to innovate responsibly, if you want to learn from others, or if you want to understand how your business can go faster, braver, and bolder in its responsible decision-making, then get in touch with Business in the Community at www.bitc.org.uk. Thank you for listening and tune in next time.